Welcome to another episode of Sworn Testimonies, a podcast where I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. My name is Kiara, and today on the podcast, I am interviewing Dr. Ebony, a psychologist, food relationship strategist, and the creator of My Therapy Cards. We have a great conversation about trauma, food, and COVID relationships. Stay tuned. Just be honest, 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 just be real, just be true, it's the only way to be free. Just be honest, it's the only way to be free. Just be real, just be true, it's the only way to be All right, so let's jump in. Uh, Dr. Ebony, can you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I'm a licensed psychologist here in good old Texas. I like to say Texas and California are sisters. They do a lot of the things alike that are actually really weird. Um, And I practice with people who are recovering and working through trauma. Um, It started out being interpersonal trauma, meaning trauma that happens at the hands of someone else. Um, childhood stuff, that kind of thing. Um, then, of course, naturally it morphed into racial trauma because I don't think we can talk about one without the other. Um, and so we just kind of work on helping them find their voice again, learning how to communicate, learning how to regulate their own emotions using effective coping skills. And in my coaching life, I also am a food relationship strategist where I help particularly Black women, women of color, recover from diet culture and learn how to get their power back from this ideal beauty industry, beauty standard, I'm sorry, that was never created for us and learning how to show up with food without anxiety, without guilt and without shame, but more from a very competent, very controlled, very confident place. Um, and we do that by focusing on mindset, habits and triggers, not what you're eating uh, so much. So that is what I do. Wow. So that's so many things. Um, yeah. yeah. I've only met a handful of uh, black people that work in the mental health space. And, you know, in my upcoming book, I talk a little bit about my own struggles trying to find a therapist of color, especially trying to find one that um, takes my insurance. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, what made you decide to, you know, dive into like working in mental health? Absolutely. And I can give some background information too on that insurance part. I think it's always helpful to have that conversation. And as somebody who does not accept insurance, I'm happy to give some information about that. Um, But what made me go into mental health is that I always kind of knew I wanted to help people. I guess that's what we all say. But I definitely knew that I wanted to help women, Black women, work through and recover from things that kind of left us feeling powerless. I kind of grew up with a, a circle of women raising me. And I saw how much they didn't put themselves first. And I wanted to definitely help work through some of those mental issues that I would see like stress and anxiety that we couldn't label or name. Um, And I definitely knew I wanted to do that. I would say my whole idea of even going into psychology started too with a high school course in psychology. And I had a a teacher who would tell me, oh, one day I just walked into class and he was like, I'm going to call you Dr. Burrell from now on, which is my maiden name. And he, I was like, why? He was like, because you're going to be a doctor. And I, me being the competitive me, I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to do it. And I knew that I was going to go as far as I could go with this. And that's literally how it all started. Wow. I love that. Like, sometimes it just takes someone to, like, plant a seed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it leads to so many other things. 
And so you mentioned you um, you don't take insurance. Can you shed some light on that? Because I feel like it's so frustrating uh, just because I, I know mental health is important. And, um, you know, I pay for therapy out of pocket because that's how important it is to me. But it's just so expensive. Yeah, I'm with you. I am a psychologist and I have a hard time finding a therapist. Um, and I have insurance and I choose not to use insurance most times. Um, so my personal reason, so a little bit of background is insurance is a third party payer. Um, they credential particular people on their panel and they tell you what they're going to pay you based on what everybody else is getting paid. Right. They can elect not to accept people if they say the market is saturated. So you actually have to apply and they can say, no, we don't particularly want this specialty. So it's not like therapists are out here not trying to get panels. You have some insurance companies that will say, no, we're not looking for that. Um, bring us something new because we have a lot of that. So you have people who can't get on because of that. You have other people like myself who elect not to pay insurance companies for several reasons or not to be on panel is because one, you have to have a diagnosis with everyone that you work with if you want to get reimbursed. Um, insurance companies will then tell you, yes, we're going to pay you. No, we're not going to pay you. If the diagnosis is not one that they feel like they want to pay for, you will not get reimbursed. So basically, we're pathologizing people based on meeting them 40, 50 minutes. I particularly left the field of clinical psychology to go into the field of counseling psychology for that very reason. I am, of course, credentialed and um, trained to diagnose, um, but I would rather not lead the work with my people through a diagnostic lens. I would rather not pathologize them and rather lead from a strengths-based approach, which is why I went from a master's in, master's in clinical psych to a doctorate in counseling. Is because I like the more strength-based holistic approach to working together. Insurance companies say, no, you have to diagnose them or this session doesn't count. So you have some providers who are saying, well, I'm not quite sure there's a diagnosis is a diagnosis there. So why am I being forced to diagnose? Because you have to have a diagnosis. The other thing is they get to tell you that they're going to pay you for the 50 minute session and that's it. Um, and then you are left writing notes for the next hour, billing for the next hour. So basically you get paid a usual and customary rate for about three hours of work per client when you can get paid way more than that out of pocket. So basically therapists are trying to live as well but they're not being compensated at the rate that is fair for, for, uh, for them and their work and their um, competence, they're being shortchanged a whole lot. So while we know that there are gaps in access, the insurance company, in my opinion, sometimes acts like a bridge, but also can act like a barrier. Mm. No, that's, um, that's really helpful to, to understand for me. And, you know, I always encourage people if they can save money, you know, and, you know, sometimes therapy is expensive. People charge anywhere from like 75 to 200 $300 an hour. Yeah. Um, but if, if they can save money and if they do have it in their budget uh, to save for therapy, because I, I mean, for me, it's been um, life changing. And I want to talk to you a little bit just specifically about like racial trauma um, or any insight that you might have or be able to shed light on. Uh, for myself and for listeners. Um, so as I mentioned in my book, I'm talking a lot about how uh, for myself, because I do identify as a Black woman, um, how being a Black woman has kind of affected me holistically and in ways that I just didn't realize until much later in life. And I chalk things up to, you know, like lots of other considerations or like, oh, maybe uh, there's something wrong with me, or maybe I'm just a really 
you know, anxious person, which I can be, um, maybe, you know, all these other considerations. And I wasn't really aware of the ways in which like being black was affecting me. Um, in your practice, have you found, um, or, you know, in talking to other people that identify as black, have you found that there are lots of, you know, ways that our race affects our mental health? Absolutely. I don't think we can live in this country without it being an issue. Um, we have to think about the, the history of this country. How can we not? We, we, trauma is in our, trauma is actually a part of our DNA. If you think about it, I identify as Black as well. And um, honestly, I was reading a book. It was either My Grandmother's Hands or uh, The Body Keeps the Score. I think it was My Grandmother's Hands. Um, thinking about police brutality and all of that, trauma is in all of our DNA. So when you think about even um, white people, right? Seeing that, being the uh, ones who are committing these acts against people, that's dramatic as well. So the shooter, the murderer is just as traumatized as the person who witnessed the murder. So you cannot, your psyche cannot be um, altered when you're into these experiences. So we're actually, as a society, engaging with each other from a very, um, from a lot of places that are unhealed, a lot of racial trauma, both ways, right? Um, but definitely being Black in this country and, and having all of the things that are stacked up against us, yes, you, we cannot. All of the things have made us, the systems, the um, different lack of resources have left us at a disadvantage to be able to rise above a lot of the disadvantages that were here way before we were even thought of. So when you think about going to a school in particular neighborhoods, you think about the educational resources, the medical resources, health resources that were available, food resources that were available, housing conditions, laws, policies, practices, all of these things have helped to create some type of stress for us. So those are the things that we're carrying with us. Those are the things that we're fighting for, that we're, par par um, I'm sorry, passing down to a lot of the people who are coming behind us. So yes, that is a part of who we are. Then we stack that on top of us in our relationships and then our parenting and work. So even going into work and knowing that somebody else who is your counterpart is being making more than you, so fighting for women's rights and all of these things, so there's no, we cannot not have the conversation of race being a part of the stress that we're carrying or race being part of the trauma. It absolutely is a thing. Um, man, that comment about going into work and someone making more than you, that I dealt with that actually at my last job. Um, and I left that job seven months ago, but it still affects me. I still think about it. And I was, you know, it's a straight black woman making much, much less money um, than a white male counterpart who had a lot less experience than I did. Um, and, you know, it's hard to, you know, exist and show up as your best self when that's playing in the back of your mind. Um, and I want to take a step back for a second, too, because I, I know people might have different working definitions of this word. But what is trauma or how do you define trauma? Yeah, trauma is any event that has significantly disrupted your psyche or function, period. Um, so trauma is left up honestly to the person who has experienced it, witnessed it, or who know who knows about it. Um, I remember being on internship and having one of my supervisors tell me that a black male veteran had experienced a tragedy, but he had not experienced the trauma. And I remember that sticking with me, and I was like, so we get to gate gatekeep people's trauma now? So we get to tell people what's trauma and what's not? She was like, Oh, yeah, that's a tragedy, that's not a trauma. And I was like, oh my goodness. And this was a veteran who was applying for compensation and pension. 
And I was like, these are the type of gatekeeping practices that is going on that is keeping people from being adequately compensated or adequately having their um, issues diagnosed and, and actually receiving help for it because we're gatekeeping people's experiences. And we know now 2020 hasn't shown us anything. We know now that that is completely out of order and unacceptable. And so trauma is left up to the person who experienced it. If something, if a divorce, um, having seen parents go through a divorce or fight or become nasty with each other, disrupted a person's psyche, because it does, it disrupts how you view relationships. It disrupts how you view the world. It disrupts how you navigate your own life. If that disrupted your psyche, that disrupted your functioning, that led you to feel unsafe in a lot of ways, that can be a trauma. Some people don't like, some people won't label things as trauma. But for those people who have experienced it, it's not up to us to tell them that they didn't experience a trauma. I think that's completely invalidating. No, that's so good. I love the way you phrase that. You know, the person who experienced um, the event gets to decide whether or not it was a trauma. And for people who might be living with, you know, trauma that they haven't labeled or they just haven't had the words to label, you know, some of this can feel very new agey to people who don't go to therapy or, you know, who just aren't in that world. Um, What would you say are like maybe signs in a person's life that they might be dealing with some um, unresolved trauma? Yeah, I would definitely tell people feeling like you're in constant survival mode, constant survival. You fight, flight or freeze all the time. Um, And that doesn't have to look like being jumpy. You can be in a relationship. And if you're kind of thinking that that person is about to leave you or that person is going to abandon you or that person's cheating on you, that person is going to um, treat you in a way that's going to make you feel unsafe and you're always waiting for the other shooter drop, there could be some instance or some indication that there might be some trauma there. There might be something that's unresolved. Even if you don't want to label it as a trauma, there's some unresolved wounds there. There are some things that are still coming up, some triggers that are still there. You can also kind of some signs and symptoms are um, the way that you take care of yourselves, your sleep schedule, your sleep routine, your food patterns, um, the ways that you kind of show up for yourself, the ways that you speak to yourself, constant guilt, constant shame. A lot of the feelings that we kind of experience after trauma is blame, shame and guilt. Um, So if you're carrying around an immense amount of that, then you might want to ask yourself, where is this coming from? Where is my first time actually feeling this where's the first time that I noticed something like this and that guilt may be oh um when I saw my brother get hit by a car when I was little I I felt like I should have ran out there and done something so there's all kinds of things that could come up for people that they may not even recognize is there and one of the things I think that gets in our way from recognizing something is trauma is that old saying that time heals all wounds because that is absolutely not true Um, And if you're somebody who's 40 now and you may say, oh, well, that happened when I was seven, I should be over it by now. Again, that blame, that shame, that guilt, that, you know, that kind of harsh criticism, then you might not actually be willing to label that as trauma because you feel like you should be over that and you're old enough not to have to still worry about that. But age actually doesn't mean anything about trauma. Um, I think a lot of times if we think about COVID and a lot of things that we saw this year with the kind of sparking the George Floyd incident sparking, you know, conversation is a lot of people started to be re-triggered and have flashbacks about a lot of things they thought they put behind them. That's an indication that there's some unresolved trauma there. If all of these things are happening for you and you're starting to be reminded of it, then this may be some indication that there's something there. 
That's helpful as well. And how, um, so how can, you know, working through a past trauma or acknowledging a trauma, how does that change, you know, the way that we show up in the world and do relationship? Yeah. So you want to think about it in terms of what is going to help me feel elevated in a number of areas, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. How am I taking care of myself? If I'm engaging in patterns that are continuously getting in the way of me kind of growing into my best self, that is a sign that I need to go back and resolve some things. I need to look at my patterns. I actually was going to say earlier that in the creation of my therapy cards, I target mindset, habits, and triggers. And so when I'm looking at habits, I'm looking at what are those behaviors? What are those actions that you're taking that are continuously getting in the way and continue to cause problems for you? Um, Working through trauma, working through unresolved wounds, working through old injuries can actually help you begin to show up better. It helps you to be more mindful. And I tell a lot of people what people don't know is typically trauma, anxiety, depression is based in the past or the future. Working through some of that stuff can help orient you to the present way more. So if I'm present oriented and if I'm mindful about what's going on right in front of me, I'm going to be more cognizant about the habits that I'm engaging in. I'm going to always be doing work on my mindset, my mindset and catching myself. I'm going to always kind of be I'm going to be more mindful of my triggers. So what are those things that are setting me off? What are those things that are causing me to feel like this is something bad is happening to me again? The more present center I am, the more I work through those three areas the more I can begin to show up differently and make different choices, which then create more elevation in the areas of mental, physical, spiritual, emotional growth. Uh, I love the way you said that, that trauma, depression, anxiety is usually grounded in either the past or the future. And I can definitely say for myself, uh, because I do struggle with a lot of anxiety, um, when I'm feeling very anxious, it's almost always related to like something that hasn't happened yet or could happen. Like it's not actually related uh, to what's happening. And you mentioned my therapy cards, which is actually how I found you. I created a card game. Uh, they're called Like You Cards, and they're just like a getting to know you um, game, like an icebreaker game. And I was just doing a little research, you know, like what other cards are out there? And I came across your cards and I was like, these are amazing. Um, so can you tell, you know, our listeners kind of what those cards are? Yeah. So they are a self-exploration deck that was created with uh, black women, women of color being at the center of the work, especially in a field where we've often been neglected and kind of not represented. So because this goes back to the insurance talk and and the accessibility. So when I started to do private practice, I recognized that there was a huge issue with access, huge issue with costs, and then issue with stigma still. So I I started out private practice saying, oh, I'm just going to see two or three people on the weekend because I still have a full-time job. I'm just going to see these people every now and then to supplement my travel money because all I want to do is just travel with my life. It quickly grew into what supposed to be just a couple clients, quickly grew to a full-time caseload, quickly. Um, And so I started to notice that a lot of people wanted to come in and I just didn't have the capacity. And even when people wanted to come in, when I would tell them my out-of-pocket rate, they couldn't pay. So I started to think and I said, well, how can I scale this? How can I make this something that actually helps more people than just the people I'm able to sit in front of? Because a lot of people also don't know that you can only practice within the state that you're licensed. So if you're listening to this and you're in Denver somewhere or you're in New York, you actually can only see somebody within the state of Colorado and the state of New York. We couldn't work together as therapy client um, because we are bound by state uh, laws for our license. So I said, well, you know, I'm on social media. 
I have this um, good amount of following. People are always wanting to talk to me about things. How do I make it so people feel like they're talking to Dr. Ebony, even if they're not talking to Dr. Ebony? Even if they can't talk to me, how can I help? Also, how can I make this accessible as far as getting it in the hands of more people and also lowering the cost so it doesn't cost the same amount as an individual therapy session and people can still do quality level work? I didn't want to, I didn't want the thing to be just like affirmations. I really wanted it to feel like they were engaging in some type of work with me while not working with me. So that's how the cars were born. And these are questions that I asked my clients. All of the questions, the mindset questions, the habit questions, the trigger questions, I pulled together the common questions that I'm asking people and the ones that people feel like are the most helpful in exploration, deep diving. Those are the ones that I put into the deck. Um, and so I tell people the cards are $50 a set, but that's 36 weeks of work. So there's 36 cards. And there's if you were to do it like you were going to therapy, even though they don't substitute therapy, if you were to do one card a week, that's 36 weeks of work for $50. So it's accessible. It's, um, it is addressing stigma. So it's called my therapy cars on purpose. I didn't want us to, to skate around the issue. I didn't want us to kind of find a fluffy name for it. I wanted to be, have therapy in the name, in the title, because I want us to get comfortable with owning that space. And I wanted it to be something that people could afford. Um, so that's how it, that's how it came about. And I addressed the mental health, um, things in the three parts of triggers, habits, and mindsets, the same as I do in my food relationship coaching, because I know that our mindset, kind of everything flows from there, the things that we're doing, and when we get thrown off in the world, how are we coping with it, and how are we bringing ourselves back to center? So that's what that it is um, sort of created around that framework. Mm. I, I love that so much, um, and thank you for making those cards. I highly encourage everybody to um, go out and support and get them. I am a huge advocate for mental health. And, you know, you mentioned food and I, I actually have a chapter in my book uh, about food. So I'd love to jump in just for a little bit and talk to you about that. Um, the relationship specifically between African-Americans and food, uh, I think is a very interesting one. You know, we have this notion of like what soul food is and, you know, the mac and cheese with all the cheese and the collard greens and the meats and all of that um, fried chicken. And then, you know, on the other competing side, we have this idea of like what it means to be healthy. And there are so many conversations about, you know, maybe you should eat less meat or, you know, a lot of plant based or, you know, cutting down sugar and cutting down oil and cutting down fat. And I think that kind of, you know, in a lot of ways goes against what a lot of black people are taught is like black food. Um, you have tips for just, I mean, really for anybody, but specifically for like African-Americans um, about, you know, just our relationship with food and how to have a more healthy relationship. Yeah. So I just want to clarify as well that a healthy relationship has nothing to do with healthy eating. And I know some people are going to be like, what? No, a healthy relationship with food does not have anything to do with how much you weigh. A healthy relationship with food doesn't have anything to do with what you're actually eating. It has everything to do with the messages that you were taught around food. Diet culture is messaging around what's right, what's wrong, what you need to do. So if we think about, I like to give people cultural context and historical context around diet culture. So diet culture, if you read the book Fear in the Black Body by Sabrina Strings, she talks about how diet culture was created out of anti-Blackness. So this need to kind of create this um, uh, su supremacy, this elitism around what the body should look like. And that was the European body. 
And black people were looked at as savages. Black people were looked at as insatiable. Our appetites are never satisfied. We're fat. We're, we let ourselves go. We don't really care for ourselves. So if you want to be everything opposite of that, then you're European. Anything else would be more towards the black end. So you found people trying to get more and more and more away from being black. And so, of course, we know that that is meant to uphold white supremacy. And so if you're thinking about all of the diets that have ever come around, they've all been from the space and mindsets and philosophy of white men. So this is what white men have told us. Even the BMI categorization system, the medical model, um, all come from philosophers, doctors who are white. The field of psychology was even born out of the medical field, which is white. So if you think about all the rules that we have, that is what's creating a lot of problems for us, a lot of the policy. So what happens is we kind of start to point the finger and you just need to kind of do better. You need to eat better, but we're not pointing fingers at the system that has created a lack of resources, these types of foods that are available to us. So building a healthy relationship with food is more about education than it is, let me tell you what you need to eat to, to get better, because better is also equated with whiteness. So it's not to say, and actually diet culture doesn't take anything into, into consideration as it relates to our culture, our traditions, our practices. So if we're going to eat healthy, if we're going to have a healthy relationship with food, one, we've got to also understand that our culture is okay. Our traditions around food are okay. It is being told when we're entering into the diet space that we actually can't eat that, which is moving us further away from our culture, further away from our traditions, and more towards the lens of white culture and whiteness. And building a healthy relationship with food is saying, okay, let me stop. Let me slow down. Let me understand. How do I want to feel in my body? It's very similar to us engaging a relationship with another person. What kind of relationship do I want to have with this person, regardless of what my mama says about it, regardless of what my dad says about it? What do I feel about this person? And learning how to listen to your own voice again. Learning how to listen and trust yourself again, because a lot of the ways in which we interact with food has been out of rules. Like you said, eat vegan, lose the oil, eat the plants, like a lot of rules. But how do I want to feel? What is my body telling me? For instance, if I told people I ate kale, they applaud me and say, oh, my God, so good. You are so healthy. Kale is disgusting to me. But if I made myself eat kale, then what am I doing? Engaging in diet culture behavior. But a healthy relationship with food says I don't want kale. I recognize that kale provides me all of these benefits, but kale also is nasty to me. And when I force myself to eat it, I don't feel good. It's not enjoyable to me. It's not fun. So what else can I eat that provides me nutrients that is also fun? I'd rather have spring mix any day. And so it's making those kinds of decisions versus the rule-based, diet culture-based decisions. So we're talking about educating Black people around food, healthy food. We're talking about learning how to get back to listening to ourselves learning how to work through a lot of those things that we have been told were right and learning how to be okay with our culture being something that is just that ours. And no, we don't have to eat the things that are killing us, but we also are placed at a disadvantage given food deserts, given resources. And so we have to bring all of this into the picture and recognize how do I begin to educate my people around how to shop for food, where to go for food? How do I begin to vote for people who are going to put more resources where my people are. That's the conversation about building a healthy relationship with food. Same thing as we would if we were talking about getting married, building relationships with people. What kind of people do you want to attract? How do you want to be in that relationship? The conversation around food is actually no different. Uh, I love hearing you say that. And just the idea of like trusting your voice again. And I know for me in the food space, I'm like, I'm just learning to have a voice because I don't know that I've ever had a voice in the food space. It went from kind of just 
you know, growing up with in, you know, my parents, they're doing well for themselves. Now they're a doctor and a lawyer, but my mom had me at 19. Uh, my dad was 21 and they were in college. So I was eating ramen and bologna and just McDonald's and whatever was cheap. That was my relationship with food, what was affordable. Um, and then, you know, as I got older and, uh, you know, my dad started cooking a lot healthier, I was like, okay, I'm supposed to eat healthy and never actually fought, like figuring out for myself, like, what do I believe about food? What makes me feel good? And I know that that's a journey that everybody has to take on their own. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about trauma. I'm sorry, can I interject something right there? Yes, please. That's a good example. So I, I still hear kind of like this good food versus bad food kind of thought process, but I would even go a little bit further to say, I wonder if we can kind of break that down a little bit more and talk about survival scarcity access. So McDonald's represents um, for you, the way that I heard you describe it, represented what people could afford, what was accessible at that time, what people had time for. So we're thinking about scarcity and survival mode. Sounds like that that's the mode that your parents were in. So your relationship with food was bred out of survivor mode. Mm -hmm. When we take away survivor mode, we put in, we enter in scarcity. You know, think about sc survivor mode welcomes in scarcity. When we get out of that, we can sit down, we can slow down, we can catch our breath and think more about abundance. We have time. We have resources. We can cook now. We can make more choices. We can think about what this is doing. That's a luxury. Mm. That's a luxury. So your relationship with food changes the more access, the more resources you develop. So it's less about healthy versus not healthy, good versus bad, and more about what circumstances around me shaped my choices around food. And those mm. are the ones that we're talking about when I talk about food relationship strategizing. Because most of Thank us are you. acting out of scarcity mindset and survival mode and we're not there anymore. And so that's what we kind of have to help people get to. Mm. That's um, that's such, such a great point. And it's hard to switch your mindset. Like when you had one mindset for so long, your surroundings, you know, your situation might change drastically. Uh, but like changing your mindset, at least for me, it's like a whole different ballgame. It's a whole different, because we, we're in it, right? When you're inside of a culture, it's very hard to switch when you're in it. We're all skilled in diet culture. It's hard as crap to fight against that while you're still in it and it's everywhere that you look. So yeah, it's a it's an uphill battle all the time. And that's why you have to make a conscious effort to kind of stay as present as you can, learn as much as you can and lose that shame and guilt because it doesn't allow you to stay present. It allows you to stay past and, and future oriented. Mm. Yeah. So for, for people who, you know, might have, you know, an unhealthy relationship with food. And as you already stated, it doesn't necessarily mean eating unhealthy all the time. Um, like even my mind is like trying to grasp that concept. Uh, yeah. What what things do you suggest? Like where do people start? How do people change their relationship with food? It takes a while for you to wrap your mind around this because this goes against everything that we were taught. If we lose scarcity mindset, just I want us to just think about it. If we lose scarcity mindset, if we lose the rules, we will eat what we need. We will not eat what we don't need. We do it all the time. But if we're operating out of, like I, I use the convenience store example, so I use it here too. If you go into the store and you're you're buying gas and you go into the store and the clerk says, hey, I just saw you go in there, you have M&Ms. You know they're about to discontinue the whole line of M&Ms, right? You literally went in for one pack. You go over and the clerk says, they're about to discontinue that. What do you think your behavior is going to be in response to that information? 
you you gonna buy all the M&Ms. You're gonna go buy all the M&Ms because that clerk just inserted scarcity into the picture. So when we're thinking about eating, when we are coming from a place of abundance that I can have whatever I want and I make choices that provide me elevation, nothing is off limits. Nothing is off limits and we will gravitate towards what we want. We're very intelligent beings. But when we're operating out of rules and scarcity and we're narrow in and, and kind of closed in, we will always make the choices out of survival mode and scarcity. But if you and I say everything is available to me, what do I want? Mm, I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And I'm going to go on about my business when I know that I'm satisfied. Mm. But we lose that. We lose that voice. We lose that body and kind of sensation, that body awareness, trauma makes us lose it. The messaging that we receive from our parents who are also inundated with diet culture, we lose that. If you are anything like me, I was born in Mississippi and my mom told me I wasn't done until all the food off my plate was gone. So I lost my voice at a very early age. I lost the ability to recognize fullness internally at a very early age. And my recognition of fullness came from external cues, which was an empty plate. Mm. Now as an adult, when I eat, Sometimes I have to catch myself because I'm eating out of habit and not eating out of present moment awareness. So mm. it's all about in reshaping our brain. So when we think about where we can start, I would tell people to really start analyzing and observing the messages that they have around food. Really start to become critical about where did I learn this? Mm. Who told me that? Does this even fit for where I am now in my life? Does this work for me? And begin to really just become curious. And then once you become curious, choose the lowest hanging fruit. Choose the thing that is going to give you wins because it is from wins that we are able to create sustainable journeys. When things don't give us wins and we feel like we're losing all the time, we're not going to continue. We only do things that benefit us as humans. That's all, period. We only do things that benefit us. Mm -hmm. Keep doing things that are going to give you those wins so that you can master it. When you feel like a master, you're going to want to keep going. So for you, for somebody, it might be, you know what? Let me learn how to throw this in the garbage and sit with that discomfort. Because first, the other thing is we got to learn how to sit with uncomfortable emotions. Mm -hmm. Every time I get ready to go throw food away, I have to fight with myself around sadness, around guilt, around shame, around resentment. And I have to learn how to sit with that. Most of us are so kind of, conditioned for instant gratification and we don't know how to sit with our emotions that we'll we won't throw it away because we want that last bite because even though we're stuck we want it because we're still operating under the guise of i'm wasting money or this is gonna make me sad and i don't want to be sad i don't like being sad i need to hurry up and get rid of sadness so first we need to learn how to sit with uncomfortable emotions and you can do that by therapy by meditation by praying all of those things but some people the lowest hanging fruit is going to be let me go throw this away i know this is half I'm not even going to box it up and take it home. I'm going to leave it on the table and leave. Mm. And that's hard. That is very hard. But for some people, that's a good place to start just to see what your reaction is. Some mm. of us are like, girl, no, that's not happening because we aren't willing to allow ourselves to see something different. So we got to get to a place where we recognize something is different. Then we can start kind of getting, building that relationship with ourselves. So that's why coaching is so fun to me because we get to do real life experiences and people get to see, Dr. Ebony, I am mad that you made me leave that rest of that pasta on that table. But I did allow myself to see that I get really sad when I don't have that food. I really feel like I'm getting in trouble. I really feel like my mama is about to come with me right now. So people don't even know they're experiencing that because we go all of our lives getting rid of that emotion, not paying attention to that emotion. 
by doing the thing that is going to get us out of that emotion, which is taking the food, cleaning the plate, not throwing food away, that kind of thing. Um, thank you for sharing that information um, about scarcity mentality. I know just listening to you and kind of processing through you know, my own feelings and my past and even, you know, just people in my life that I'm very close to, I think a lot of people are still operating out of a scarcity mentality, not just with food, uh, but in relationship and with money and in, um, in so many other ways. Uh, and I know you mentioned, you know, sitting, learning to sit with our emotions and the uncomfortable emotions and becoming okay with that. Do you have any other tips for people who are struggling to get out of a scarcity mentality? Yeah, I definitely do a lot of reality testing. Um, so a lot of us, when we're kind of coming from a place of trauma, which I really do think for a large part, poverty, scarcity, lack of resources can be traumatic to people. Thinking about where they are now and checking the facts around what their reality is. Um, and so I definitely would say kind of if you're, thinking I'm going to waste money, really sit and think about what that means. We say things to ourselves that actually have no footing or grounding in reality. Really? So how are we wasting money? Get curious and ask yourselves questions. Also, think about the conversations that you're having with people and what those sound like. Because we can talk up and have a conversation with people that reinforce a lot of things that aren't true. So if I'm sitting around with my girlfriends and I'm talking about my weight or I'm talking about myself, Really ask yourself, how are you reinforcing and keeping yourself stuck? What are some other things that you can say to yourself? What are some other parts of yourself that have nothing to do with weight or food? What are some other ways that you can take care of yourself that might help to change even your appetite? Because a relationship with food does have to do with your appetite, but it's not the only thing. I think that sometimes people think it's the only thing and it's not. But when we are talking about appetite, think about ways that you're either helping your appetite or, or helping it to stay stuck. What is your sleep like? Are you moving your body in ways that feel good to you, not ways that are going to help you lose weight? Are you only weight focused or are you health focused? Are you engaging in weight seeking behaviors? Or are you engaging in um, health seeking behaviors or weight loss behaviors? Those two are very different because weight loss behaviors may not necessarily be healthy. Those are not one and the same. And mm -hmm. ask yourself, am I actually happy with would I be happy with myself if I never lost another pound? Like, and how do I start to build that relationship? How do I start to do that? How do I start enjoying my food? How do I make these moments enjoyable? I was reading a book that talked about the way the Japanese engages with their food. Every moment is about happiness and experience. Every moment. How do we create that for ourselves? How have we become a society that is only geared towards if we're eating nasty food and we feel like a we feel like a good person because we at least got something healthy in our bodies, how have our judgments and characteristics and morals become tied with food? Really becoming critical about that. Why can't we just enjoy food to be what it is? Food that doesn't have power. So a lot of these things are going to be internal work. A lot of these things aren't like, let me put my finger on it and I can change that. A lot of people want quick answers, but I'm not that person who says, oh, just do this and do this and do this. You really have to do the work yourself and really get internal because that's where that's where the growth is. I think we can follow directions really well, but really the deeper work is in recognizing some things in yourself that you want to change and want to work on. And you can enlist the help of a coach. You can enlist the help of a therapist. You can do all of those things with the help of a dietitian. Um, you can start there, but there is no quick fix and there is no right and wrong way to do this. It's an ever changing process. I've been on my journey to build a healthy relationship with food, I would say honestly, since about 2015. 
And I get it wrong all the time. I, I do things that compromise my relationship with food all the time, just as much as like we do with, in relationship with people. We can be in a relationship with somebody and we're like, I do things to compromise that relationship all the time. Why is this person still with me? That's exactly how I end up with food sometimes. Like, why are we still here? And you have to give yourself space to just be that. It's an evolving process. And as you grow and change and as different things are thrown your way, so will your relationship with food. It's not a you do it, you get it, and then it's done. It's an ever-evolving process. But we're so used to instant gratification that we can't sit with knowing that it's going to be a forever thing and not just a 30-day thing, a 28-day thing, a six-month thing, a 90-day thing. 90 thing. It's going to be way longer. That's so, it's so good to think about. And, you know, you, you also mentioned um, that you do some work in relationship counseling and um, I'd love to just, you know, get your thoughts quickly, actually based on a conversation I had with a friend um, the other day and, you know, relationships are like very complex in general. There, that's like a whole, there are books, there are podcasts, you could talk about, you know, ways in which, you know, one thing is dealing with the relationship with yourself, and then you add a whole nother person to the mix, and it gets really complicated, uh, especially, I think, you know, given the COVID-19 situation and politics, and we're just thinking about, you know, there's so much going on in the world, um, and I know a lot of people are dealing with this. If you have two partners, and one has very specific views about politics, about COVID, about, um, you know, racial injustice, any and name any other thing there, you know, we can, we can disagree about in 2020 and the list is endless. And you have another partner who has very strong opinions on the other side. Is it possible for people to be in healthy relationship um, and have like very different outlooks and views in the world? How important is it uh, for people to actually be on the same page with their partner when it comes to that type of stuff? I think it I think it goes both ways. I think that answer is yes and no. I think if you have a healthy level of communication and you have an effective way to communicate, you can have opposing views. I think it really does come down to what are your values. And this is the thing that a lot of people are missing. It's like what are your values around these issues? How and what priority do they have in your life? If the priority is politics, y'all differ and you value your value is um putting people in place who can create policy of change for people who fit within a certain class and your partner believes something totally different. If that's a top priority to you, chances are you're going to be out in the community actively doing things. You're going to be campaigning. You're going to be um, donating money to these causes. You're going to be talking about these things. And if your partner directly opposes that, and that's one of your top priorities, that's the right space for arguments. Arguments are not bad. How are we coming to the table how are we agreeing to disagree and what conversations are we having around that? And does that impact our flow? Does that impact how we get along? Sometimes it will. Sometimes it won't. You have to be able to talk about the differences instead of thinking that somebody has to think like you or somebody has to do the things that you do. Or if this person is calling you out and saying that you don't make any sense because you think how you think. OK, we're in a relationship now where there's complete invalidation. That's a whole different topic. OK, so I think it can exist. I think that we have to understand, one, what's our values? Do I want to be with somebody who has those views? Do I value that kind of difference? Or is that something that I want to teach my children? Is that something we can agree to disagree about in a very healthy way? Or, you know, is this something that is going to be bothersome and I know I can't deal with? Then it may be time to find somebody else. 
or I'm not going to act like it's not a problem. I'm going to honor that. I can't I can't deal with that. Or I'm going to honor that we differ and it's OK for us. Um, I was listening to the radio. I heard this, this woman saying that she and her partner actually disagreed on who to vote for. And they were completely fine. And they were in a house together. It wasn't something that got in the way for them or at least something they were paying attention to. So I think it can exist. I think you just have to be clear on what your personal values are, what your relationship values are, and really figuring out if you're willing to compromise those or not. That's, um, I think that will help so many people. And, you know, I've just, I've heard so many stories and it's a hard time, right? There's, like I mentioned, there's so many things to disagree about. uh, But I think you're right Um, and asking yourself what it is that you value, because if politics and, you know, policy is very high on your list. And every time you look at your partner, you're like, I can't believe that you did it. And that's, that's all you're seeing them through. Those are the eyes and through which you're filtering everything they say. Um, It's a problem, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to, we have to understand that Different people stand on different sides of the world and people believe what they believe. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not even saying I agree with it. But can you see where people are coming from? And some people just aren't willing to see it and think that if you're in a relationship, everybody has to have the same views and see things the exact same way. And I just don't believe that. Now, I myself couldn't be in a relationship with somebody at this point in life to vote differently than I vote for um, because my mind just haven't matured in that way. And I'm just being real. Um, that's a value of mine and I'm not willing to compromise that. Somebody else may say, you know what, that doesn't bother me because that's not my value. And that's totally okay. I think we got to get to the place to see that people are allowed to make decisions based on where they sit, where they come from. And that's okay. Those decisions have consequences. You can choose to be in that same space with them or not, but they have a right to, to feel how they want to feel. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. have a, I, I can choose not to be there too, you know? A hundred. And my last, my follow-up COVID relationship question because I've also heard a lot of people just discussing this um is it possible or I mean anything is possible I believe anything is possible Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've heard a lot of people say that it's not really possible to build a new um healthy relationship in this like space of quarantine because we're in these kind of like what abnormal meaning something we're not used to something different uh situation and people are making decisions out of loneliness, out of fear, out of, um, and so I have, you know, a group of friends who are like, you know, I'm not even going to try to date during this time. I think I just want to wait for things to settle down. On the other side, I have, you know, heard people say, this is actually a great time to jump into a relationship because you get to see how people act when, you know, in a high stress situation in the middle of a pandemic, and maybe this could bring you closer together. Do you have thoughts about building relationship during uh, COVID? Yeah, I think you can build a relationship at any time. I think that it's a lot, it's really, people build relationships in prison, for goodness sake. Like, you can build a relationship at any point. Um, it really does depend. Like if you're in prison for the rest of your life, should you just not have a relationship? Or if we're in COVID for the rest of our lives, should we just not have relationships? I think people like to impose their rules on people for what their limits and fears are. We can't do that to people. If that's a limit and fear that you have, that's a limit and fear that you have. That doesn't mean that somebody else is going to be bound by those same limits and fears. So if a person wants to Sometimes finding a relationship during COVID is actually healing for people, especially people who are isolating alone, people who are kind of going about this alone. It's scary. And as humans, we're meant to thrive in community. And what more 
can we do then to thrive in community during a crisis, during a trauma? So some people are going to build those relationships and some people are going to cope in that way. I absolutely do think that people can build healthy relationships in COVID because it's all about the internal mindset and the internal anyway. What are your thoughts? Are you getting the help that you need? Are you healing in the ways that you need to heal? Because honestly, I don't think it's any different than people coming out of divorces, starting relationships. I don't think it's any different than people losing parents and starting relationships. It's all a crisis. It's all traumatizing to people. So should those people also not be in a relationship? Um, I can see where people are coming from because we have our own rules, but we also really have to release ourselves from knowing, thinking we know best for somebody's life. Um, as a therapist, I don't pretend to be the expert over anybody's life. I just, I'm on the journey with them. So we have to learn how to get away from that. And people absolutely can build healthy relationships. It's all going to start with effective communication anyway. Things can be perfect outside and you can have a hellish relationship. So does that mean, like, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> so we have to, we have to be careful with the assumption that people can do certain things because um, crises are going on. We're very intelligent beings and we can multitask. And so people can absolutely do that. Uh, thank you for your thoughts. You all heard it here. Dr. Ebony said it's possible to build a relationship and find love during COVID. So if that's something it, it absolutely is <laughs> been stressing or thinking about that to all of my um, single friends who are dating, keep the hope alive. Um, okay. Do virtual dates, get creative, you know, go do coffee on the back in the hood of your car, like sit outside the apart. It's fun. Get off social media. Go do things in real life with your mask on. You can be safe. <laughs> 100. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, you, you know, for letting me borrow your brain. Mm -hmm. I would love to um, be able to just, you know, plug your cards again real quick. So if people are interested in purchasing, where can they go to find them? Yeah, go to mytherapycars.com. That's it, mytherapycars.com. You can go to drebony.com um, to find out more about my services that I'm updating. And you can find me on Instagram at drebonyonline. That's going to be Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the same handle. Awesome. Well, there you have it. You all know where to find her. Um, thank you again for being on the show. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Sworn Testimonies. As you heard, if you're interested in purchasing Dr. Ebony's My Therapy card, you can hop over to her website and get those. If you're interested in getting my card game, Like You Cards, a getting to know you card game to help you get to know people on a deeper level, an end to awkward conversations. I personally hate small talk. So if you're anything like me, these cards will be great for you. And you can order those at www.likeucards.com. L-I-K-E-U cards.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day. Just be honest, 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 just be